Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Britt Wade. Britt is the Workforce Development Coordinator of Family Harvest Farm, an organization in Martinez, California. Well, welcome, Britt. I am so glad you could join our podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Lynn. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you're welcome. I am excited to find out about you and your organization. Why don't we go ahead and just dive right on in? If you would, could you please share a little bit about yourself, your background, and how is it that you came to be connected with foster care? Absolutely. So my background is as a licensed clinical social worker. I finished my MSW at University of Washington in 2017, and since that time, I've worked across multiple systems, including the medical, mental health, and legal systems, serving a pretty diverse population. I came to work with foster youth actually through my clinical interest in trauma. I spent the last six years more or less working with trauma survivors, and I started to notice in my clinical practice that my clients needed more than I could give them in the therapy room. Some were successful in taking our work into their day-to-day lives and building connections, and others, I would say the majority, struggled immensely to build these connections. I started to realize that the systems that I was working in were not set up to meet the needs of those that I was serving in the ways that they needed to build healthy and fulfilling connections and lives. Around the time that I started working as a trauma therapist full-time, I read a book by a gentleman named Johan Hari, who's an investigative journalist, and the book is called Lost Connections. In this book, he made an argument that there are seven realms of disconnection that cause depression. And the realms of disconnection that he talked about were disconnection from meaningful work, disconnection from other people, meaningful values, childhood trauma, status and respect, the natural world, and a hopeful and secure future. I also had been really influenced by a thinker named Gabor Mate, who's a psychologist and trauma expert. He explores this theme of trauma as a disconnection from self. I was really struggling with those clients that were struggling themselves to rebuild these connections in their lives. I knew that I wanted to transition into a role where I had the ability to create something innovative that really help people to foster those connections in addition to the therapeutic support that they were getting. Something really holistic that sought to be a solution to the gaps that I was seeing in the systems where I was working. Around the time that I started to really feel like I needed to make that transition, I found out about Family Harvest Farm. Family Harvest Farm is a three and a half acre organic urban farm that launched operations in 2020. And it's actually a program of the John Muir Land Trust, which I can talk a little bit more about that connection in a moment. And initially, to be honest, I reached out because I was interested in volunteering there. And the reason I was interested is because Family Harvest Farm, first and foremost, is a workforce development program that serves transition age foster youth. And I hadn't really heard about anything like this before. 
So I had reached out initially to volunteer. And what ended up happening is I got an email back from one of the staff there saying that they were interested in hiring a workforce development coordinator. And did I know anybody? And so that's what sort of started this process. Well, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I thought, gosh, this sounds like a really interesting solution to the gaps that transition age foster youth are facing. I became so interested in this intersection between agriculture and workforce development and community building and healing and transition age foster youth. And that's sort of how I found myself in my current role. The disconnections that you mentioned, I'm thinking of particularly the ones that you listed from the Lost Connections book. Mm-hmm. I myself have done some reading around the concept of the importance of meaning in life. Man's Search for Meaning is one of the books that I have read and I think is really critical. And everybody's meaning can look different. But I was just wondering, do you think that there might be some kind of parallel or overlap between connections and meaning? That's a great question, Lynn. Maybe it's a little more philosophical than we (laughs) usually get to in these podcasts, but it just crossed my mind. I thought I'd throw it out there. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that connection and meaning are intricately connected. The realms of disconnection that Johan Hari talks about, actually meaning is a word that is included in that, meaningful work, meaningful values. And I do think that for young folks who have gone through the foster care system and in many ways have had their lives defined by that system, have not felt that their voice is what is driving the bus. I do believe that connection and meaning go hand in hand here. I think that connecting with a meaningful future is something that many of the young adults that we work with at the farm who have had experience in foster care are seeking. They're seeking that meaning. They're seeking a fulfilling life. They're seeking to connect with a future and a next chapter where they can feel a connection to those meaningful values, feel a connection to meaningful work, and feel like they're making a difference in their community. And I think that that's really the full cycle of healing when we think about trauma is being able to make a difference, a meaningful difference for other people. So the meaning is, you know, if they haven't discovered meaning while they're in the system, which is difficult to do. That's what they're really trying to grab onto. Of course, aren't we all, right? When we're growing up and we're, we're trying to figure out who we are and what's important to us. But I think there are particular, more difficult challenges to finding that. Certainly. It reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where at the very top is essentially meaning. And that if we don't have those basic needs met, safety being one of them, that it's hard to really connect with meaning and imagine what our lives could be, where we could go. And I think young adulthood is a moment where you're really thinking about that. Suddenly you've finished school, you're transitioning out of the foster care system, and you're thinking, what's next for me? What do I want my life to be? And I think that can feel like a really overwhelming question for any young adult, and particularly for young adults that may not have the support of a family to give them the resources to be able to explore different opportunities or the guidance to be able to help steer them in some potential directions that might be meaningful for them. Right, right. 
Well, I think this is probably a good time because I'm going to guess there's some overlap between meaning and what you do there at Family Harvest Farm. So (laughs) in trying to help them find their direction and find their meaning. So why don't we transition to that? If you could please share what it is that Family Harvest Farm does for these youth. You did mention it's a three and a half acre urban farm, but what's the experience that the youth have when involved in your program? I first want to mention that Family Harvest Farm is a program of the John Muir Land Trust. And the mission of the John Muir Land Trust is to protect and care for open spaces, ranches, farms, parklands, and shoreline in the East Bay. And so you might be wondering, what is the Land Trust's connection to a workforce development program for foster youth? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the really exciting things about this program. This is a program that uses land-based resources to facilitate greater health and justice in the community in which we work. We do that through a number of ways. The most important way that we do that is through a workforce development program that is 6 to 12 months for transition-age foster youth. The farm's mission is to offer foster youth meaningful employment and experiences in a local food system that encourages healthy living, nurtures the environment, and feeds the community. So all of the young people that are working on our farm are between the ages of 18 and 24 years old. They all have had experience in foster care at some point in their life. And while they're in our program, we offer them the opportunity to receive on-the-job training in sustainable horticultural practices. And that looks like regenerative farming, which is a way of farming that, to put it simply, is about being responsive to the needs of the land, first and foremost. It's a way of farming that is reciprocal. The land nourishes us and we nourish the land. And our young people have opportunities not only to build skills in regenerative farming that are hard skills that they can take into their next endeavors, whether that be landscaping, working in the world of food justice, working in many different areas in culinary arts, working in farming, and many other different fields that are directly related to those hard skills. They also have the opportunity to really build transferable job skills. When I came into this program, there wasn't really a roadmap for how to create a trauma-informed, strengths-based, youth-centered workforce development program in regenerative agriculture. There was no <laughs> class in grad school that taught me no, how to really? do that. <laughs> and one of the things I looked at was a white paper that Child Trends had come out with in June of 2015 called Key Soft Skills That Foster Youth Workforce Success. One of the things that that paper summarized was that there are five critical skills that are most likely to increase the odds of success when it comes to workforce development for young people. Those were social skills, communication, high order thinking skills. So that includes things like problem solving, critical thinking, and decision making, and interpersonal skills of self-control and positive self-concept. And that was one of the things that I used in creating a structured workforce development program. And so our young people are building those skills. They're learning, how do I show up consistently to a job on time? How do I communicate with a supervisor? How do I do a self-evaluation of my work performance and receive an evaluation from my supervisor? How do I solve problems in the workplace? 
How do I interact with my colleagues? How do I regulate my emotions such that I can be in a workplace in a healthy and productive way? And so in addition to the farming skills, our young people are building those transferable work skills that they can take into any educational or employment endeavor that they choose to go into next. Not all of our young people come into our program wanting to pursue a job that is related to farming directly or even indirectly. What we do is provide individualized support to our young folks so that they can identify what their goals are, both within the program and when they transition out of the program. I think that individualized support is so important because, as you and your listeners well know, the foster care system is incredibly overwhelmed. Those individualized services that support young people in envisioning what they might want to do next unfortunately, are not as available. So we've had young people that come into our program that they say, I want to be an electrician, and I haven't had any work experience before. And I think I need some extra support in building some skills and building a resume. And actually, we had one young man that did go through our program, and he did graduate. And he did go on to pursue another workforce development program that exposed him to the trades. And he felt more prepared for that because of his experience at the farm. I think that the other piece that I want to make sure to talk about today is that we'd pay our young people a living wage. And I think for young people that are transitioning out of the foster care system, it's incredibly important that they can support themselves financially. Our young people work on site 20 hours a week. They're paid a living wage. They're building those regenerative agriculture skills. They're building those transferable job skills. And they're also building a healthy and supportive community while they're with us. Do you mean like a community between themselves and the other youth? Yes. They're building relationships with one another. And it's so powerful to see young people coming together. And our young people are such different people. All of them have had experiences in foster care. And they're all very unique different individuals, seeing them come together around tending the land, around their experience that they've had in foster care that's led them there has been incredibly meaningful to watch. And I think that the farm is a place that is by and for foster youth. It's a place where I'm not the only one. I'm here and I'm a leader in this space. And I am integral in defining what this program is I'm integral in my community because I'm producing food that's going to my community, and I'm teaching community members through various workshops that we host and other events that our young adults are leaders in hosting. I'm a leader in my community, and I'm defining this program, and I think that that is something that is really special about the farm. Sure. I think young people really want to feel like they have some control in their lives and can influence what's happening. And I think being able to contribute and provide some input on your program or, you know, of course, the goals they set and how they're going to reach those goals. I think that's critical. I do as well. In our program, we have a number of different ways that we work with young people to define those goals and to define those directions. One of them is through biweekly check-ins where our young adults meet with myself and we talk about what's going well at the farm. What are areas for improvement? How are you doing emotionally, socially, physically? 
how are you doing on working toward the goals that you've set for yourself that you want to achieve by the time you finish this program? In addition to those biweekly check-ins, our young people are also engaging in what we call milestone check-ins. And those are check-ins that include a performance evaluation. Those performance evaluations are really meant to be an opportunity for reflection and collaboration rather than I think in some employment settings, they can be somewhat punitive, especially if you're someone that's struggling to be successful. The way that we approach dealing with behaviors in the workplace that we know may not set our young people up for success when they transition into their next steps is asking, why are we seeing these behaviors? What happened to you that are informing these behaviors? And actually, one of the questions that I feel so inspired by, which is a question that Dr. Gabor Mate, who I mentioned earlier, asks is, what happens inside of you as a result of what happened to you? And so we take a curious approach as to why a behavior is occurring rather than responding to it in a punitive way. And what we see is that many young folks who, young adults, I should say, that are transitioning out of the foster care system, they're getting jobs and they're struggling to keep those jobs. The largest struggle that I've observed in my practice at the farm is mental health. Things like PTSD and depression and dissociative episodes, struggles with anger management, struggles with anxiety and panic attacks, things that very understandably manifest as a result of the trauma that is experienced by many foster youth. What we're able to do, and my background as a clinician, is to help young people appreciate where are these behaviors coming from? How might I seek to address these? How can we create a positive action plan? How can we create a self-care plan? Who are the other supports in your life that might be able to help you through this? That is, when I say trauma-informed, because we do seek to be a trauma-informed workforce development program. That's what I mean, is that ability to work with people to really understand and address those behaviors rather than in a traditional employment setting where if you don't show up for three days because you have been having a PTSD flare, you're going to get fired. You've alluded to this. I think one of the things that all young people should learn, but I think particularly those who've gone through trauma, is to be able to identify, you know, the triggers for what you've experienced in your life and what are you encountering as you're going through your workday that makes you feel a certain way, makes you feel emotional, angry, upset, frustrated, whatever. And like you're saying, then to have a plan when that happens, but that self-awareness, I would think is probably something that you work on as well. Certainly. We do have a large portion of our program that is focused on life skills as well. I forgot to mention that earlier. We have classes on Wednesdays and life skills are one of the themes that we deal with in those classes. We've had classes on things like values and values-based decision-making. We've had classes on how to manage different mental health challenges. We don't just have classes on life skills. We also have classes on things like career, different topics related to career. So things like resume building, interviewing, my life skills or work skills. We've had classes on things like health equity and social determinants of health as well as classes related to things like sustainable living, flower arranging, cooking classes, fermentation. So the classes range, but you're right that life skills is one of the things that we're really focusing on and self-awareness being one of those life skills that we are trying to help our young adults to hone. Terrific. Let me get back to a couple fundamentals. How many young people do you have involved in your program 
I would say at any one time or within a year, however you would want to describe it? Yeah, that's a great question. So our program, I should mention, is relatively new. Our program started operations in 2020. And as you and all of your listeners know, that was also the time when COVID-19 happened. And certainly every organization, I think, has been impacted by that and had some struggles. So it took a little bit longer to really get things off the ground. Regardless, in the last year, we've served 15 transition-age foster youth in our workforce development program, and we plan to serve another 15 transition-age foster youth this upcoming year. We are a small program, and that's on purpose. We're a small program because we want to provide quality of services over quantity of services, recognizing that quantity of services is one of the things that creates the conditions where young people aren't getting their needs met in the foster care system despite the best intentions of all the people that are working in that system. It's just myself out there, as well as my colleague, Mary, who I should have mentioned much sooner in this conversation. Mary is a former foster youth herself, and she has been a farmer for the last 12 years. Mary was involved before I was involved in this project, and she is the heart of our program. She went through a program that was very similar to ours in Santa Cruz called the Homeless Garden Project. It is a workforce development program for folks who are unhoused. Through that program, she found her passion for farming, which launched her career. Working with Mary and bringing together our different perspectives has been extremely meaningful and I think is such a strength of our program. She brings the lived experience of having been in the foster care system for 10 years and having been through a program like the one that we are running today. I bring my clinical experience and knowledge and bringing those two perspectives together, I think, is one of the unique things about what we're doing. I wish that she could be here today. This is taking a well-deserved vacation, but the two of us are out there running the program. And so as such, we seek to serve the number of youth that we feel like we can really provide a quality of service to. In addition to our workforce development program, we're trying to broaden our impact on the foster youth community. Part of the way that we're doing that is through setting a goal to serve 350 foster youth and families through hosting workshops, through collaborating with agencies who refer young adults to us, and through distributing food to foster youth and their families. We couple our workforce development program with these other ways of trying to reach the community of foster youth and families in Contra Costa County. So when you're saying foster youth and families, are you talking about foster families or their families of origin or both? We're talking about foster families. Okay. We don't have a great mechanism right now for trying to reach families of origin. We partner with a number of organizations at the state, county, and nonprofit level in order to receive referrals. Those organizations, we could not do our work without them. They provide such needed support to our young people, and we try to serve, I try to serve as a member of their wraparound teams. So many of our young adults have therapists, case managers, independent living skills coaches, CASAs, things like that. We work with those agencies both to refer young adults to us to help support young adults in our program, as well as to reach other foster youth and foster families through things like food distribution, workshops, et cetera. Yeah. So you've mentioned referrals a couple of times. 
how are the young people selected? What are the criteria other than having experienced foster care at some point in their lives? Are you looking for anything else in particular? You know, that's a great question, Lynn. In my experience working with county level, state level, nonprofit organizations, what I found is that everybody defines what is a foster youth differently. And that can make it really challenging to navigate the resources that are available. So for us, the criteria of having had experience in foster care at any time in your life is much more broad than many other entities and organizations are able to offer as as a definition. So 18 to 24 years old has had experience in foster care and has an interest in our program are the criteria that we use. There are some very logistical things like being available during our schedule, which is Tuesday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., living, you know, in a place where you can reasonably get to the farm. But other than that, we really seek to offer this opportunity to any young person who is interested in the opportunity, regardless of the barriers that they might be facing. Okay. So you're not going to have a young person who's resistant necessarily to participating because they're volunteering, if you will, to be part of it. Yes. This is a job. And any job, I think you have to be motivated to do that job. And so, no, we don't have any sort of involuntary involvement in our program. It is all voluntary. (laughs) Right, right. Okay. Well, that does help. So I'm just curious if the young people have expressed why they've chosen your program. Yours is so unique. What are young people saying about why they wanted to work with you as opposed to any other job? That is a great question. Many of our young people really enjoy working outside, really enjoy the physical nature of the work that we're doing. Other young people are really excited about growing food. We had one young woman who came to tour the farm. She was interested in a position and she remarked that she had never seen food growing out of the ground before. And that was so powerful for me to hear. I think many of our young people really have lived in communities where there isn't a lot of land-based resources available, where they haven't had the opportunity to grow to access to eat organic, fresh produce. So I think many of our young people are really excited by learning how to grow food. Others are really excited about making a difference in the community. So all of the food that we grow at Family Harvest Farm goes to the community for free. And that's because we're located in a USDA-designated food desert, which means that due to accessibility, affordability, and proximity, There's not enough food, fresh food, available for the amount of people that live in the community. If you were to come to our farm, you would see that it's underneath power lines. It backs up to a major highway. It's very close to a refinery. And next door to our farm is a 250-unit mobile home park. We are a hyper-urban farm. And you asked about meaning earlier. And the meaning that our young people are able to draw from increasing food security in the communities in which they work and live is incredibly powerful, especially given that many of them have experienced food insecurity themselves in their lives. So to feel like you're making a difference and also to feel like you're healing the earth. It's no mystery to you or I or any of our young people what's going on with our climate and what's going on with global warming and this environmental 
crisis that we all find ourselves in. I think young people are being increasingly mobilized by the question of what is the earth going to look like in 20, 30, 40, 50 years for my lifetime, for my possible children's lifetime? And learning how to farm in a way that is so nourishing to the earth and that if adopted on a large industrial scale could really have a powerful impact to reverse some of what we're seeing with global warming, I think that's really motivating for our young people. So I think that's another reason. And once folks are in our program and they experience what it's like to be a part of a supportive community, I think that that's one of the things that keeps them there. And I would imagine as you continue over the years that you will have youth referring other youth. I call them youth because I'm old, right? So (laughs) these young adults (laughs) referring other young adults. Yes, certainly. I also oscillate between youth and young adults. And we're talking about 18 to 24-year-olds, junior adults, if you will, possibly. I think that, yes, we have actually received many referrals from young people that say, hey, my friend is interested. Hey, you know, my roommate's interested. And we did have an evaluation done. And something that was so powerful was that 100% of the young adults that we've worked with so far would recommend this program to a friend. Yeah. Wow. And those relationships that young adults build at the farm with those that they work with, I think have such an immense ability to facilitate healing. One of my personal heroes, Judith Hurtman, who is a psychiatrist that wrote Trauma and Recovery, which is like the Bible for (laughs) those that are interested in trauma. She talks about relational trauma can only be healed in the context of relationships. So for Mary and I, and for our volunteers and community members and people that play a huge role in the farm, for our young people to have safe and healthy and encouraging relationships with adults and to have those same qualities of relationships with the young adults that they're working alongside, I think has such an ability to help disconfirm some of those traumatic relational experiences that they may have had growing up. Yeah. And I'm going to take a guess here. I would think that it's easier to build relationships when you're doing something together like farming versus just sitting at a table and staring at each other. Certainly. I think that when you're working together with like-minded individuals toward a shared goal that creates a more just and more healthy community, I think that that is where you can build incredibly powerful relationships with other people. I also am no horticultural therapist. That certainly wasn't something that was covered in my master's program. (laughs) But I think that one of the things that trauma does is it creates a disconnection with our body. That alarm system that's in our brain that helps us to sense threats can often be overactivated in folks that have experienced trauma and especially um, chronic and persistent trauma and especially relational trauma. And bottom-up regulation, being able to have really safe experiences in our bodies, I think is one of the powerful ways that we can heal. And I think that being out there and connecting with the earth and doing it in such a physical way where we are really grounded in our bodies also helps us to be in a more grounded space from which we can create healthy relationships that will help us to heal from that relational trauma. No pun with grounded space, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
And I would imagine it's also very, you know, when you're growing food, my sister is a huge gardener and she's a huge garden. I don't garden myself, but I see what she does. It's very satisfying and a relatively fast product comes from it, right? Even if it's just seeing the shoots come up out of the ground, it's got to be very satisfying to see the results of your work on a farm. Incredibly so. And I should say that I had never farmed before I started working at Family Harvest Farm about 10 months ago. So I have been a little bit of an apprentice as well (laughs) out there. And I've gotten to experience alongside our young adults for the first time in my life as well, the process of planting something. And let me back up from even planting it, getting the soil ready, building a bed, then planting a seed in the greenhouse and watching it grow and nourishing it until it's ready to go out into the field and then putting it out into the field and fertilizing it and watering it and caring for it, the endless task of weeding to make sure that it's able to thrive. And then you see it grow and then you harvest it. And then we take it into our kitchen And we cook lunch every day with the things that we grow as a group and we share in it and we eat it together. And just today, I was at the farm this morning before this interview, one of our young adults was remarking at how she remembered every task that we've done to prepare the tomato bed. And today we harvested probably upward of 200 tomatoes that we put out for the community her talking about how satisfying that process is really is one of the things that I take home every day with me. And I think it's really special. Yeah, it really is. I wonder how scalable the program is. It seems to me that it is fairly scalable, but you need to have certain elements in place. You need the land and you need, like you're saying, somebody who knows farming and somebody with a clinical background, at least. And you need young people that are within a reasonable distance to be able to get there. Are there any other elements that you think, if someone's listening to this going, well, I could do that, what would you recommend that they have in place? That's a great question. I think the things that you mentioned are all spot on. I think that access to land is one of the things that you mentioned that is tricky. It's hard, especially in a community where you may not have a lot of open space where you can farm, or you may not have the knowledge or resources of how do I acquire land. I think that one of the things I think about scalability for a model like this is this collaboration between a land trust and organizations that serve transition age foster youth in the community and the many different collaborators that have been able to come together to make this program possible. All these classes I mentioned, I don't necessarily teach all those myself. We partner with a number of different organizations that do things like career counseling, that work to engage those who have been historically excluded from public health careers to help them access careers in public health. I mean, there's so many people that make this possible, but I think that the land is tricky, and I think we have an opportunity in our communities and in the land trust community to really think about how do we harness land in order to achieve greater social and environmental justice in our communities. A workforce development program in regenerative agriculture for transition age foster youth is one of those examples. 
But I think there's so many different ways that we can leverage the resources that we do have to create innovative solutions for populations that have been systemically excluded. And I agree. I think that yours is unique and I think it's wonderful. And I hope that there are people out there listening to these podcasts who work with young people aging out of foster care who might know of a land trust or you might know somebody who knows somebody in a land trust. Maybe you form a partnership and start thinking about it. Absolutely. Maybe there's already a community garden or there's already a nonprofit that's working in some way that is related to food justice that has a farm. You know, I think there's so many ways. Collaboration is so key. And that's what we found in this work is, as I was mentioning earlier, that it's about collaboration. It's about bringing together interdisciplinary perspectives to think creatively about how we can create a healthier community and for us, a healthier community for transition age foster youth and a healthier community in terms of increasing food justice and food security in our community. It's really thinking about who are the players that need to be at the table and how can we all come together to think creatively. Well, speaking of thinking creatively, I know we're getting close to the end of our time, but I did want to give you a chance to answer the final question I usually ask our guests, and that is, what do you think the foster care system could do or should do to improve the outcomes for these young people who are transitioning into adulthood from foster care? So I think that one of the opportunities is to expand workforce development opportunities that are informed by and responsive to the needs of transition age foster youth, particularly workforce development programs that understand that trauma and the resultant mental health challenges that stem from trauma are one of the biggest barriers that transition age foster youth face in being successful in traditional employment settings. I think that it's critical that programs seek to be responsive always. That's an iterative process. I'm still learning how to be responsive to the needs of the population that we serve. And I think centering the voices of the young people that we work with anytime that we're looking to create an innovative solution is the first step. And I think in these workforce development programs, it's critical that our young adults are paid a living wage given the unique circumstances of having to financially support yourself when you are a very young adult at, say, 18 or 21, based on different states and counties, the different resources that are available to folks at different points of that transition. So I think paid a living wage. Because they can't necessarily go back and live with family. Correct. I think that another opportunity is to provide workforce development programs that allow transition age foster youth to engage in meaningful work. We're back to this theme of meaning. Yes, Um, we are. (laughs) So that they can begin to build a positive self-concept to see themselves as leaders in their communities and connect with meaningful work that inspires them to pursue education and employment that they feel passionate about while also solving problems. For us, that looks like increasing food security and healing the earth, but that could look like a lot of different things. And I think oftentimes entry-level work is not super meaningful. I know for myself, when I got my first job, it certainly I didn't feel super compelled by working in a customer service job, which is not to say that those jobs aren't important in our communities. But I think when you have folks that are maybe struggling to show up to work and struggling to feel connected to the work that they're doing, I think that providing those opportunities to do work that makes a difference is one way that we can motivate folks. And when folks call me and they say, hey, I'm having trouble coming to work today, that's one of the things we talk about is 
what will coming to work today mean? What will that accomplish outside of just you and I and our farm community? How will you make a difference by showing up today? And I think that that is something that I can say personally motivates me to show up to work every day in the work that I do and that I hope to instill in our young people. I think a third thing is I know Alameda County, which is a county here in the San Francisco Bay Area, just announced that they will be piloting a universal basic income program for transition age foster youth. Yeah, I've seen that. And it was informed by a committee of transition age foster youth, actually, which was an opportunity that we shared with some of our young adults. I think that it's going to be so important to watch what happens in that pilot. And I think that programs like this can alleviate the financial stress that forced transition age foster youth to just have to do what they have to do to survive, as opposed to really pursuing opportunities that lead to self-growth and development, exploring their interests, pursuing education and training. I think that programs that make it possible for young people again, referring to Maslow, to meet those basic needs so that they can think about what they want to do in their next chapters and what they want to write for themselves. I think that that's a huge opportunity. So thinking about how do we financially support our young people as communities that are transitioning out of foster care. And the last thing that I'll mention, I mean, I could talk about this for a long time, but (laughs) and maybe even one of the most important things in my perspective is to employ those who have lived experience as foster youth in leadership positions in programs that serve transition age foster youth. I think that that is one of the things that I am so grateful for in this role is the partnership of my colleague, Mary, who I mentioned was in the foster care system for 10 years. Her leadership in this program has made such an impact in our community. And I think that we have to start raising the voices of those who have lived it. And yes, clinical experience can be so complimentary and so important in that conversation as well. I think that that is something that the foster care system could improve on, is prioritizing those voices and raising those who have lived it into leadership positions. And I think people with lived experience in the foster care system often, of course, not all people, but often will do something in their lives to turn around and try to help other young people from foster care. I mean, that's why I do what I do, because I was in foster care and I aged out and my sister did. And I know there are so many young people who end up going either into social work or getting jobs in programs like yours that work with young people aging out of care or just foster care in general. And so I think, again, going back to the meaning, that is one way for a lot of these young people as they transition out is they could get meaning from thinking about, well, maybe I could turn around and help other young people who have been going through what I went through. Absolutely. In my opinion, that is true healing. That is the full circle. I hope that for every young person that comes to our program, that they connect with a path in their life that contributes to their healing, where they feel empowered, where they feel deserving, where they feel worthy. That is my hope for all of them. And I am so grateful and honored to be able to serve in the role that I serve in and to bear witness to the incredible resilience of the young people that come through our program. It is really an honor. Wow. I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up this interview (laughs) than that (laughs) statement. But I will ask you this, though, one final thing before we wrap up. If anybody wanted to send you a donation, is there a place online where they can go to do that? Absolutely. 
they can go to www.jmlt.org. And when they get there, on the top right corner, they'll see ways to give. And if they click on that, they'll be directed to a page that explains that process. And that would be the best way. Wonderful. And just for those who heard the URL just now, that's the website for the John Muir. Is that, am I saying that right? Correct. For the John Muir Land Trust. I said it right. Muir Land Trust. <laughs> so JMLT. Just to let folks know you're not looking for familyharvestfarm.org or anything like that. Correct. And if you do decide to make a gift and you do decide to make that gift online, you can just put Family Harvest Farm somewhere in the information section and we'll know that that is for the Family Harvest Farm program. Hey, wonderful. I tell you what, Britt, I am so glad to have had this opportunity to talk with you today and to learn about your program. I'm so excited about the model I am so hoping that people listen to this podcast and get the idea that maybe they can do it too. And we can start scaling this to other places in the country. It may be tougher in a place like Minnesota or Maine that have short growing seasons, but maybe in the warmer states, this would be a fantastic model to follow. Lynn, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for getting the word out about what we're doing. And I certainly hope that this interview may serve as a resource to those who are looking to create innovative solutions in their communities. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. And for those who have listened to the podcast to the very end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so to just keep checking back on our website, agingoutinstitute.org, and you will find the podcast link there. I also want to share that we have a Patreon site. So if you're interested in donating a little bit to help us put these podcasts out there, we would also appreciate that. It's at patreon.com slash agingoutinstitute. So thank you all very much for listening. Until next time.